joining us on this ep- week's, week's episode of Gateway to the Smokies. This podcast is about America's most visited national park, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and the surrounding towns. This area is filled with ancient natural beauty, a deep storied history, and rich mountain cultures that we explore with weekly episodes. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, a man of the world, but also with deep roots in these mountains. My family has lived in the Great Smokies for over 200 years. My business is in travel, but my heart is in culture. Today, we're going to have an expert on nature and, uh, and conservation in the Smoky Mountains we're going to talk to. But first, let me talk about our sponsors. Now, imagine a place evocative of motor courts of the past, yet modern and vibrant with a chic Appalachian feel, a place for adventure and for relaxation. Imagine a place where you can fish in a mountain heritage trout stream, grill the catch on a fire, and eat accompanied by fine wine or craft beers. Imagine a place with old-time music and world cultural sounds. There is no other place like the Meadowlark Motel in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Your Smoky Mountain adventure starts with where you stay. Also a sponsor is SmokiesAdventure.com. Smokies plural, adventure singular. It's an information and listings uh, site about the Smokies, including hiking, wedding venues, books, trail map, maps, resources, entertainment. The emphasis on of Smokies adventure is on outdoor recreation, outdoor life events like weddings and adventures, along with providing information on lodging, family entertainment, events, conventions, honeymoons, and more. The goal of the site is becoming the leading information portal for traveling to the Smoky Mountains. So uh, today I am drinking, I am in New York. I'm not in North Carolina like I have been for the last six weeks. Some of you might know if you read the Mountaineer or Greensboro Press or something like that. I had a little adventure at the Meadowlark Motel involving staff and COVID and I ended up losing a number of staff members and I had to be there and actually do things like clean the rooms and <laughs> and everything else until we got it into into a uh, new shape and it, but it's doing well now but um so I got to come back to my family in New York City for a few days so I, I'm pretty happy about that so I don't have a uh a mountain uh, uh, uh beer today I've got a New York City beer they also have wonderful local breweries up here I know that uh my guest down there is drinking, I think, something from Bougian, but I'm drinking uh, uh, Harlem Brewery, 125th Street IPA. First time I've tasted it, and it's really pretty good. Um, so uh, I'm pretty uh, pretty happy to promote breweries anywhere because it's, you know, it's a great, uh, I think, resource to have craft beers where you live. So anyway, my guest today is Don Hendershot. Don is a naturalist. Freelance writer, biological consultant, and natural history tour guide. His column, The Naturalist Corner, ran for more than 20 years in the Smoky Mountain News. He was also a regular contributor to Smoky Mountain Living Magazine, and he plus as he's written for Southeast Discovery, uh, Native American Journal, Our State, and he covered the BP Gulf Oil Christ spill for TheExaminer.com. Hello, Don. Hey. Joseph, how are you? How are you going? How are you going? How are you enjoying that bougie beer? <laughs> well, it's probably not. Well, no, you have IPA, so I'll, I'll stick with my dark here. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So you um, you started out a, a, a Bayou boy out from uh, Louisiana. How did you end up in Western North Carolina? Um, like I said, uh, you know, you, you could spend an hour to try to get through this, but um, uh, we have an hour. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, in uh, graduate school at Louisiana Tech, and unfortunately, went through a divorce with a wonderful woman who I'm still friends with. But um, went to work offshore and uh, worked there and that kind of cramped my wanderlust and I just loved being at the ocean. And so I decided to pick up and follow the ocean, got a job at Hilton Head Island. And soon after I got the job, I got laid off. But fortunately, I have uh, F and B skills. I grew up in a mom and pop restaurant in Louisiana. So I went to work on Hilton Head uh, at a private club. And the people that I worked with, they got the club up and running, went up to Highlands, North Carolina to start another club. And I followed them up to Highlands and I got to the mountains in Highlands, North Carolina. Oh, wow. So uh, <laughs> so like, like I ended up in New York, business took you where you had to go. Yeah. <laughs> and well as your, your interest. So I guess when you were in uh, the offshore job, that's where you did the, the uh, you covered the, the oil spill? Well, no, that was after I was riding. Uh, but, uh, I, was, I was offshore uh, years ago, back in, uh, back in the 80s. Okay. And uh, uh, I left offshore and went to Hilton Head around 84, 85. I got to Highlands, North Carolina in 1986. And uh, got to Haywood County in Waynesville in 1994, and I've been here ever since. Okay. Um, so, I mean, how how would you compare? I mean, at this point, you've got a couple of daughters that are growing up here in Haywood County, but you grew up in Louisiana. How would you compare the the, the growing up in uh, Louisiana <laughs> and, and Haywood? Uh, that's that's another uh, strange. Um, Conundrum, people think of Haywood County, think of Waynesville as a small town. I grew up in a place in Louisiana called Marouge. The population was 800. There were 15 kids in my graduating class in high school. So uh, Haywood County is kind of not a small town exactly <laughs> when you come from that background, yeah. but I understand it. And uh, it, I, I like the uh, community and the rural small town part of Waynesville it makes it comfortable for me to be here mm -hmm. but it's, it's just big enough that it actually has a little bit of uh, a little bit of cosmopolitan things in it right oh, it has great it has great things and 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 but it's still community focused like the, yeah. they'll have block parties they'll block the street off in main downtown uh, Waynesville and uh, so kids can come out and run they'll have uh, square dances and things like that well, every Friday night in the summer, it's a block right, off, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you ended up in Haywood County. Now, how did you get into writing? Well, a hundred years ago, when I started college, I first began in technical writing because people told me that creative writing was a bad way to go. So I started technical writing, and I wasn't very good at it. And I switched to uh, wildlife. Uh, which I loved and grew up in Louisiana. And um, 
I uh, changed my major, but I always loved to write. So uh, after uh, after I graduated from college, uh, we're getting kind of ahead, I guess, but uh, the, the urge, the expression of writing has always uh, been a big part of what I enjoy and who I am. All right, and then, um... So, I mean, you started writing, I guess, while you were in Haywood County, right? Is that what it was? Well, the, I started my column when I got to Haywood County. I, I, uh, I wrote uh, a little bit in, in Louisiana before I left. But, oh, I uh, see. But I got to uh, Haywood County, and the local newspaper here, the Mountaineer, posted an ad wanting to know, because they were losing their naturalist writer and mm -hmm. wanting to know if anyone had... Uh, knowledge in the field and uh, uh, cared to write about it and uh, I sent them some pieces and they hired me. Cool so you got to you so I, I missed the little part but yeah you started writing natural about natural uh, things in Louisiana and then you continue that once you got here. Right. 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 Okay cool so um, I mean I find that sort of fascinating um, so um, I, it's like I mean you imagine end up here and you can't uh, you know, the, which is a mountain country, but you're also, <laughs> but Louisiana, you're right, writing about lowlands uh, swamps of the deep south. But so, uh, and they both have really uh, diverse ecosystems. Um, so that makes many of them dangerous. Did, did you find a lot of similarities, or, or what did you find that that crossed both uh, both both uh, both both areas? <laughs> Well, yeah, like I said, my, my college and my education is in uh, wildlife conservation. And I think the most dangerous creature you will encounter in a wilderness situation anywhere is homo sapiens. <laughs> <laughs> most of the animals that live in the wilderness, they have certain niches that they live in. And if you don't bother them, they're not gonna bother you. Um, I, I reporting for Smoky Mountain News, and you know, they would have bear stories or whatever, and uh, so I I would uh, interview experts in bear behavior. Uh, guy at University of Tennessee called Mike Pelton was called a bear man, and he said that basically for every bear you see in the wild, ten or fifteen have seen you. Yeah. Yeah, and they, you know they're not after you. There, there are times uh, in certain situations where uh, maybe if you come between a mama bear and her cubs, or if you do something that elicits a, a kind of a predatory response, then you might get uh, a notion from a bear. But basically, they don't want to see you. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't. Oops. I'll lock you there for a second. So they don't want to see. Oh, that's all right. Now you're back. So, so they don't want to see. Well, what about in Louisiana? What was the big dangerous animal there? Was it like an alligator, crocodile, or something like that? Yeah, you know, I I graduated from Louisiana Tech. I I did an internship at Rockefeller Refuge back in the '70s to show you how old I am. And uh, the director of uh, Rockefeller Refuge was a guy named Ted Joanna. And it was at a time when they were trying to put the American alligator on the endangered species list. And Joanna was saying, look, you can't walk in the marsh here without stepping on an alligator. They're not endangered. Mm -hmm. 
So the idea was that we went down there and I spent a summer there and we caught alligators and relocated them. We caught over 3000 alligators in a summer. Wow, wow, and uh, they're, you know, they're more afraid of you than you are <laughs> of them. And the thing about alligators that's unique that maybe people know or maybe people don't know but they watch too much television is alligators don't have a lot of muscle to open their mouth. Uh. Once their mouth is open, it's like a trap door when it shuts. But when it shuts, in other words, we would catch eight, nine foot alligators. You put a rubber band around their nose and they can't open their mouth. I see. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's not as scary as people would like to make it out. So, yeah. As long as, not, catch, as, long as their mouth's not open. <laughs> <laughs> we would catch them and tag them. And uh, we use some for relocation and uh, just some for uh, counting just to know where the gators live and how they live. Cool. Well, we're going to take a break now. We'll come back and uh, talk about any close encounters you might have had and then uh, get, <laughs> get more into uh, what's going on in the, in the, in the naturalist world. This is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Gateway to the Smokies podcast and my guest, Don Hendershot. So, Don, we were talking about alligators and bears. Now, uh, before we move on from that, do you have any close call stories that would just totally thrill our audience? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, personally, I don't. But like I was telling you, we, we caught alligators for an entire summer. Well, uh, I was at Rockefeller Re uh, Refuge and we would go over to Sabine Refuge and we would load up and we had to go out a place called the uh, Gray Ditch. And there was a huge gator that lived there. He was like 10 or 11 feet long and he was there every night and you could just turn the motor off, coast up to him, put your head, hand on his head and push him down under the water and release him, and he would pop back up like a cork. And he would just look at you. He's, I mean, gators don't really have another predator, but they're like an apex predator. So if you if you don't elicit a, a, a predator-prey response from them, they don't care much about you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they just like, uh, no, that's- they, They'll do their business. You're not a fish. They're not gonna eat you. Yeah. yeah, you know, they, you're not going to scare them because they're too big to be scared. So they just hang out. You know, my bear story, my, my predator story, my bear story is, I, you know, we grew up in the, in the I grew up in the, in, in the Smokies. And my, right. we had a, my parents had a house before we moved to Maggie Valley. We had a house way up in the mountains, uh, not too far from the Appalachian Trail. And it was a nice place. It had decks and I had a deck in my bedroom. And this is when I was like in the sixth grade or fifth or sixth grade and I'd sleep every night within the summer with the windows open and uh, and I'd have my dog uh, Collie named Velvet to sleep with me right I loved right. having that big old dog well all of a sudden one night in the, uh, you know, in the middle of the night she just jumped up and started screaming I looked up and I saw that a bear was looking had his nose sort of in my window <laughs> but her her barking so much they just kept on going they didn't want anything to do with it but it was uh 
it was a moment of, uh, you know, it was like early, I don't know, it was like, uh, it wasn't like night, middle of the night, it was like early evening or, or early or dusk, I forget when it was, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I live in, uh, in, in the woods and uh, four or five years ago, for about two years, we had bears and uh, they would come to get the bird seed out of the bird feeders. And when we realized they were there, we would have to take everything in, but we never knew exactly when they were gonna show up. And the mom bear and the babies would come and they would shake the feeders and they would try to get the food out of there. And then one night we had a boar, he was well over 200 pounds and he just walked up on the deck, grabbed the can of bird seed and walked off with it. So I ran out and yelled at him and banged and he ran away. Then about two days later, came back up on the deck, got the can again and started off in the yard. And I ran out and yelled at him again and he just sat down in the yard. And I'm going, wait a minute. So, you know, what's going on? So I'm yelling, he's just sitting there with the birds eating. So I go back in, I get a pot and pan, I come back out and I rattle it and he stands up and he looks and uh, still nothing. He just stands there in the yard. Um, he's a lot bigger than I am. Yeah, right. So I, yeah, so I went up to the driveway and I got some rocks and I started pelting him with rocks and, and got his attention and he moved off to the back of the yard but left the can there and he, then he just sat in the yard and I'm thinking, you know, what's going on? And then I realized it's misting rain out there. So he can't smell me. Uh-huh. The, the noise doesn't bother him. It's, it's the smell. If they smell a human being, they're going to leave because they know that they're on the dinner table next. Or, you know, right, right, whatever. Right. But, but he couldn't smell me because of the rain. And he just heard and he was just wondering what's going on because, like I said, he's a lot bigger than I am. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, we, we, we had a, we we signed a truce. He he left the bird feed, and I didn't throw any more rocks at him, so we were cool. Was it? Would you say a boar is actually a little bit more dangerous? Boar, a boar is a male bear. Yeah, no. Oh, no. you mean the boar bear? But there's more. There's more up in the mountains too. Yeah, but not not around us too much. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So if somebody's hiking, yeah, this is a nice thing for the listeners. If somebody's hiking, you come across a bear. Uh, what's the best thing to do? Well, uh, there, there are, the first thing you do is uh, you stop and you make noise so that the bear knows, you know, that there's somebody there. That's where it is. Um, you, if the if the bear doesn't leave, then when you stop and you make noise, and the bear is is curious and doesn't leave. You make more noise, you get louder. Uh, if you pick up a stick, you do anything, wave your arms to just a, appear larger so that the black bear doesn't know that, I mean, doesn't think that you're a prey, doesn't think that you're something to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure that you didn't accidentally get between a mama bear and cubs. If you did, then you back away. Always keeping your eye on the bear because when you turn your head, that's that's also a predator prey uh, signal. Right. In other words, you, you want you want to face the bear. You want to tell the bear that you know you're not prey and you're not afraid. And you just the bear just needs to go away and leave you alone. You talk in a low voice. 
calmly say, go away bear, wave your hands, wave sticks or whatever. Um, and if something unfortunately happens and the bear is still, you know, not convinced, you have to fight a black bear. You can't, you know, you just like, you know, <laughs> you it, it, it's, it's you or him, but it, you, it doesn't happen. The, the, the scariest thing is they do a bluff charge. They'll run at you, snapping their teeth and, and uh, growl. And you just can't run. You have to just stand your ground and, and let them run that bluff charge. More and more hikers are getting used to carrying bear spray with them. And it's a good thing for uh, black bears to carry bear spray because uh, a couple of squirts of bear spray or uh, like an air horn, loud noise, something like that. And, and they're usually gone. Uh, there's these signs um, out west where you have black bear and grizzly bears together. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, how to tell the difference between black bears and grizzly bears, how to tell the difference between black bears, scat, what you should do. Say, like, uh, you should always wear bells on your shoes and you should keep pepper spray with you. And that uh, black bear scat looks like piles of uh, mashed up berries or vegetation or something like that. It says grizzly bear scat smells like pepper and has bells in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> has bells in it. <laughs> so you don't you don't you want to mess with grizzly bears. The grizzly you know? ones are wrong not to mess. Right, with. Uh, black, black, black bears are usually, but yeah, yeah. They, they're not a big deal. <laughs> well, in these mountains here, do we have um, do we have? Uh, I know we have bobcats because I've seen them, but uh, but yeah. I was uh, you know I always heard there was cougars or mountain lions. You still they still exist. Well, it, that that's uh, that's also a, a, a cool story. Um, I think the last recorded mountain lion was killed in the Smokies around 1920 at Spence Field in the in the Smokies, mm -hmm. and uh, a guy named Tom Sparks was out uh, harvesting corn or something, I think, and a cat um, attacked him. And he pulled out a knife and he fought the cat out. He fought the cat off and he stabbed the cat. And two or three, or uh, maybe a week, two or three days, a week later, the cat was found and killed and, and it had scars on his shoulder where the knife blade had gone in. Wow. And that was the last recorded account of a cougar in the, in the Smokies. People... Everywhere, uh, you know, I, I've been in the business writing about natural history in the Smokies for uh, a number of years, and everybody has their own uh, cougar story. But basically, the, the story that the Wildlife and Fisheries first put out was that there are no more eastern cougars. But sometimes people, for some reason, they bring cats in to for pets they're gonna breed them or keep them or whatever and uh, they get they escape they get away and they found killed or run over in the road and they kept saying that well these are western cougars these are not eastern cougars right and recently around the 2000s this woman i think her name was stutzberry did a big dna study and there actually are no difference between 
Eastern Cougars or Western Cougars. <laughs> they play one Cougar, but um, Fish and Wildlife and other uh, organizations haven't really um, got on board with that yet. And I think it has to do with Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. So if, if they can say that the Eastern uh, Cougar is extinct, and if someone wants to introduce an apex predator, predator, which would be a Western Cougar, that's okay. But if they would say that the Eastern Cougar is not extinct, someone could not bring another Cougar in because it might create um, competition or whatever. Uh-huh. So, but the late um, 20, uh, 2011, 2015 or something, the uh, Cougars were found in West Tennessee. Cougars had definitely been uh, documented in Connecticut and uh, uh, run over roadkill that was found. And this cougar originated in the Black Hills of Dakota. So mm. there's a possibility that they're coming back this way. I, you know, I, I've had too many stories. You know, I got a, a guy that used to look after my place out in Iron Duff, right? And right. his name was he was junior and he'd grown up, grown up there. And he would swear up and down. There was cougars and mountain lions up in that. <laughs> mountains. Yeah. He'd see, he'd, he'd describe them in detail, how big they were and everything else. And he was a big hunter. So yeah. Now storytelling is a big tradition in the mountains, you know? Right. You know so, you know, you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. So maybe it was just a big bobcat, but yeah, the way he described it, it sounded more, more like a mountain lion to me. Yeah, and and you don't know if it's one of those released uh, pets or if it's just, like you said, something that somebody sees. In, in Louisiana, we call it a grigri. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they see at night or they see yeah. somewhere. Um, I, I, being an old fart, I, I have the fortune of seeing a cougar, eastern cougar in Louisiana in uh, 1968 and seeing red wolves in Louisiana in 1968. But I don't think there's been any reported since then. Okay. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, We'll get back to talk a little bit about your writing career. Thank you. This is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Gateway to the Smokies podcast and my guest, Don Hendershot. So, Don, in uh, 2003, you won the Western North Carolina Sierra Club Media Award for Environmental Reporting. 2010, you were nominated for Roosevelt Ash Society's Outstanding Journalist in Conservation. 2011, you were the winner of the Roosevelt Ash uh, Outstanding Journalist and Conversation Award. 2018, you won the Browns Award for International Regional Magazine Association uh, for a feature, A Perfect Storm or the New Norm, about the devastating 2016 wildfires across Western North Carolina and East Tennessee, which, by the way, I drove through at one point, which was oh, nuts. Wow. Um, so, um, it sounds like you uh, do a lot of writing about conservation in these in these mountains and in general. Um, you know, given the context of what's happened out in California this last summer, where do you think we're going with uh, our climate? Well, 
it's getting hotter, Joseph. And uh, whatever people do to deny that, they're not paying attention. Uh, glaciers are melting. Uh, permafrost is melting. There, there, there are annuettes in uh, Alaska that are losing their village because they're sinking into uh, the permafrost. There's just uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, warming issues that we either don't want to grab, don't want to take responsibility for, or just don't believe. But it's you know it's happening. The 2016 fires and the Smokies. The Smokies is one of the wettest places in the world, and to have fires almost burn Gatlinburg down is just you know it's never it's never happened before. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that was insane. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, I was, you know, it was like driving through and there's like, you know, you feel like you're almost engulfed in the fires. And I was early in it, right? And I, I could right. imagine trying to get out of it. Um, how else is it affecting the Smokies besides just those fires? I mean, uh, well, it's, it's, it's affecting uh, species distribution. Um, uh, it's affecting migration. Uh, some some birds that uh, migrate to the Smokies to nest. Some of birds are coming earlier because uh, it's warm enough that the insects that they depend on when they nest and hatch are out earlier. So they have to come. They have to come up earlier, and uh, it seems to be. And uh, you know, this is science. Science is a slow wheel. It takes it takes a little while to really catch up but it seems to be that um, some of the species uh, are moving to higher elevations uh, to, just to seek uh, cooler temperatures um, and uh, other species kind of that used to hang out in the Smokies are kind of bypassing so they can get to their northern nesting territories uh, while the insects are flush and everything is going on. Wow. Is there anything that, um, yeah, that people come to see in the Smokies that maybe might be disappearing and they should come, you know, now to see? <laughs> uh, I, I can't think of anything, Joseph, really offhand. Um, like I said, I, I do bird surveys for the Forest Service. I've been doing them since 2004. And Audubon and places like that, uh, three or four years ago, started saying that we're we're losing um, uh, migratory passerines or songbirds, and I hadn't seen it on on the points that I do. I hadn't seen it until this year, and this year I began to see it. I, I would have points where, for the last eight years, I had 13, 14 species, and I would have five species. Uh, on these points. So I don't know exactly how that translates or how that fits in, but I, I for this year, I, I'm seeing a difference that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, because diversity of biodiversity is huge in the, in the Smokies, right? Oh, um, it, it, it's, it's non-parallel. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like 128 different species of trees in the Great Smoky Mountains. Wow. You know that doesn't that doesn't even begin to talk about uh, plants. I mean, forbs like wildflowers and grasses and things like that. But 128 different species 
of trees in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It's, yeah. And I know there's, you know, I know there's global efforts to protect environment and to some level of failure or success. It, what can what can be done at a regional level in the mountains? You know, uh, I I don't know really if there's anything that can be done at a at a regional level. Um, it, it's it's fossil fuel use and and um, uh, the status quo, the way the way we have come to do things throughout history, um, the way we use resources. If, if people don't start, and, and by people, I mean governments or corporate or quasi-government, quasi-corporate don't realize that, hey, you know, the, we could use uh, solar or wind or something else, and we could stop uh, emitting all the CO2 in the atmosphere. That would go a long way. But I, unfortunately, it seems like it comes down to a question of profit or not. Well, and also, I think, you know, political intent. I think that people sitting somewhere where they're not particularly affected yet, they should have a concern for their neighbors to understand that, you know, at some point, you're helping out your neighbors in that regard, with neighbors being your people next door, people next state over, the people in your country uh, need your participation in helping save, you know, the environment, you know, specifically, but in the long run, it's beneficial for everybody. So it's a sense, and everybody needs to have that sense of responsibility, right? I of think. course, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, we, did, we just had a, a devastating flood in Haywood County. Yeah, I'd have dumped uh, nine inches of rain in Crusoe in like 24 hours. I think six lives, maybe more, maybe seven were lost. And uh, these types of things are happening more often. They're occurring more often. Uh, Two inch downpour in an hour, 20 years ago, you would have never heard of it. It's like commonplace almost now. And People just don't quite make the connection yet. I don't know why. No, well, it doesn't necessarily affect them directly. And then, you know, it's, it's, you know, as you've seen in this world today of pandemics and everything else, people um, are caught up in their own personal, you know, dramas, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and there needs to be some level of escaping that to understand you're part of a bigger story. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't think escaping escaping. I think there needs to be a, a, a level of enjoying that and realizing that and taking part of that. Uh, it's it's strange. I'm from Louisiana, and uh, hurricanes and natural disasters are are part of what happens every hurricane season in Louisiana. And they have the Cajun the Cajun Navy. They the you know people go out to help their neighbors. And they risk their lives to help their neighbors, but they won't put a mask on to help their neighbors. I'm kind of I'm at loss. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah, and there's a lot of people that are spreading misinformation for the profit. And you know, it's yeah, what can we do? We have to, you know, it's a it's a societal disease that we have to work with. Yeah, so um, so on a cheer, more cheerful note, let's move on. You, you, <laughs> You've, you had you had a, a, a column for 20 years called The Naturalist Corner. Right. You've recently written a book that pulled together a bunch of those columns together, right? And uh, yeah. 
And it's called A Year from the Naturalist Corner, column, volume one. Volume one, right? yes. Yeah, right. and what's that, what, is, what's the, what would you say is the, the theme of that book? Uh, the theme of that book is just, we, it's, I start in January, at uh, first week in January, and then I go to the last week of December, and I just went back through, like you said, I have 20 years of columns, and I would just pick out a column, and I don't even know why exactly, so I would just go through and say, oh, this, I like this column. And I would pull that one out and I would pull another column out. And I did that throughout the year and I pull those columns out and uh, put it in a, in a book form. And uh, Smoky Mountain News helped me uh, publish it. And uh, it, was, it was received pretty well, but it just came out just before the pandemic hit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I have plans to, uh, to do more. I'm, I'm thinking about volume two being um, Birds the Word. I'm thinking about going back through all those columns and from each week, pulling out a column that has to do with birds. Wow. Whether, whether, whether it's, you know, a specific bird or whether it's just birding in general or whatever, and do uh, 52 weeks of uh, birds. Wow. So, I mean, you've been a columnist, I mean, short form, essentially, for most of your life. What inspired you to put together a book? Uh, because I am short form and I can't write a book. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't sit down and I, I don't have the uh, uh, the patience or, or the uh, grit that it takes. And I, I just, I appreciate people that can write novels or do that sort of thing, but... Uh, if I sat down for three hours and tried to write, I would I would be toast. I, mean, I would just. Well, you know, it's sort of the modern form of writing now. Lots of people write a blog and then they'll pull together their blog post into a yeah. book. I mean, it's sort of modern. You sort of uh, come back to the modern. You know? yeah. But I mean, yeah. did you just get the idea to strike you? Say, I need to put together some of this to write a book or does somebody suggest it or? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I, I got the thing is, it's, it's, for me personally, it's, it's a big part of my life. I, I, I created the Nashville's Corner. I uh, pitched it. Uh, I got it accepted and it's been well received. And I just think, well, maybe there's a bigger audience out there. I don't know. And so I uh, want to put something in. Like I said, I, I the the steps the everything that you have to go through to go to a publisher and get published it's kind of like indie music you know there are some great musicians nowadays that just got tired of the yeah red tape and just decide hey you know we can do this ourselves and so i and then don't 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 get me wrong you know if, if a publisher wanted to come say hey we'll do this for you i'd be I'd be on wagon, but I, I don't see that happening. So, uh, well, what do you think? What, what what was the theme of the Naturalist Corner for twenty years? What, what, oh my God! See, that's 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 the wonderful part about Smoky Mountain News and Scott McLeod, my publisher and and editor. He said it just has to pertain to outdoors. Whatever whatever you see, and and I would do it. I I love being outside, and I see things. The, uh, there are a lot of environmental issues that I would report on, but then I'm having breakfast on my deck and I look and there's a gray tree frog there and it's stuck on the window with those big old suction cup 
toes. And people don't understand how those frogs move or what they do. And that's so that's a column. So it's just like it's just like being aware and, and seeing things outside. So I, I like, you know, this this happens at your house too. Um, ladybugs, ladybugs in Western North Carolina come into your house, especially if you own a big gray or brown house. It's because they're Asian beetles that come from Asia, they overwinter on rock faces that are gray and your house looks like a big gray rock. And so they come to your house. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, well, we just have, put that out there. Yeah, well, we have to take a break. We'll finish up, uh, you know, talking about what you're doing now and, uh, and uh, how people can find out about you. <laughs> Thanks. This is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Gateway to the Spooky podcast and my guest, Don Hendershot. So, Don, you uh, you mentioned birds. You do a lot of bird watching programs, nature walks, and, and all sorts of outdoor programming. Isn't that right? Well, the pre pandemic, yes. <laughs> Post pandemic, not so much. No, really? Uh, Nothing going on now? Well, uh, no. Not, uh, not group wise, not group wise. I I still bird. Um, I don't. Have you had George Ellison on here? Or uh, George has a a big birding program that he does every spring, and we did it this year. Everybody that participated was vaccinated, so we did that. But uh, uh, myself, I just don't feel comfortable inviting people out uh, in in, uh, in this. Uh, in this environment right yeah yeah uh, in this environment yeah exactly uh, and what, what kind of things did you do you did some nice you did some tour bird watching oh, we, uh, i i worked with uh, basically i i work with different organizations i i usually don't organize uh troop uh trips on my own but there's um uh Different different organizations. Uh, I began years ago with uh, actually the uh, Waynesville Arts Council, Haywood uh, Arts Council. We used to do a, a, a program every year, and um, uh, Alarca Expeditions. I do several programs with uh, Alarca Expeditions, uh, and uh, generally, I just put myself out there. And if somebody says, "Hey, would you lead a trip for our group?" Uh, we used to do Waynesville watershed walks and things like that. What kind of uh, what kind of uh, walks or things would you do in the winter? Oh, in the winter is a great uh, great time to do uh, like uh, tree buds, buds and uh, ad tree identification uh, for winter time when there are no leaves on the trees and you can't cheat. You know, uh kind of kind of look at uh, the. Uh, actual physical characteristics of the buds and the stems and the bark and the things like that. Cool. So you would go like in the Smokies or some trail and uh, hike along there and figure it yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, anywhere. Like uh, Waynesville Watershed. We, we used to do walks in the Waynesville Watershed. But yeah, anywhere in the Smokies or along the parkway. The parkway has uh, the Mountains to the Sea Trail crosses the parkway dozens and dozens of places. And you can do a 
short out and back on there and see lots of different things. Cool. Well, I'll have to talk to you about that. We might want to do one of those from the metal. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I love to get some uh, some winter uh, seasonal historic, you know, heritage and cultural and outdoor things going on because yeah, it's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. There's the we we actually still live here in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here in the winter, we're still open in the winter. So we, yeah, we're still open. We walk outside in the winter. Yes. So, what is your favorite type of program to lead? Um. That's that's kind of a tough one. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people enjoy birds, and I enjoy when people are having fun. But but for me, I enjoy just being out and ambling along. And if you see a bird, that's cool. If you see an interesting plant, that's cool. If you see a salamander, that's cool. Just whatever you happen to see. Uh, at the time and instead of saying oh we're just going for birds and so you walk past 13 species of salamanders and don't look (laughs) (laughs) but i but i do what people want to see (laughs) you know uh bob plot you know uh these programs he 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 mentioned a a funny story of what happens with a lot of some of these programs you get people that Asked some silly questions like he built a fire once and somebody asked him if that fire was real. Do you have any funny stories like that about some participants? Uh, I let me see. I, I wrote that down somewhere, uh, but not not really not really like that. But you you have um, stories where uh, oh we were doing a hot watch at at Caesar's Head and there were a bunch of. Uh, turkey vultures that came through and the people were sitting there and pointing and said look there are the red-headed eagles and uh, those aren't eagles what those aren't eagles they're vultures they're turkey vultures no they're red-headed eagles so you know you something you can't tell <laughs> somebody knows more than you don't really exactly that, yes yeah. oh wow but i mean all kidding aside i guess you find your work educating people very gratifying right I, I I like it when somebody says, uh, "Oh, really?" and 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 like they're really processing mm-hmm. what you're saying. Like you can go you can go to a hawk watch and you're looking. Uh, I don't know how you do birds or or not, but uh, we have two species of exhibitors that are small hawks, the sharp shins and the coopers. And if you're up at an elevation and one of these exhibitors comes by you. If it turns its head and looks at you, it's a cooper's hawk. If it has to dip its shoulder down to turn and look at you, it's a sharp chin because of the the way the wings are and the way they project. Cooper's hawk has a, a like a smaller wrist projection and a bigger head, and they can just turn the head and see side by side. But a sharp chin can't see past its wing, so it has to dip its wing to see. So, wow. You know, if that if that bird dips its wing and there's a what what exhibitor is that? That's a sharp champ. So um so if if people want to find out more about what you're doing, where would they go to find out? I I think at this point in time right now, uh email me or I do have a website on I think I, I gave it to you. I don't know. Um I haven't been able to update it as much as I would like to after the pandemic. But um, 
they can email me to find out about the book or they can email me to find out about uh, if they're interested in uh, a, a specific type of natural history program and say, hey, you know, we'd like to come up and we would like to do birding for two days on the parkway or something like that. Just, just send me an email. And what's your email? It's D-D-I-H-E-M, the number one, two, at gmail.com. All right. That sounds fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today. This is well, thanks for inviting me. And uh I'm 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 enjoyed meeting you. We'll talk seriously about doing something in the winter for a metal arc. I, I think that's a that great would be great. That would be yeah. fun. Yeah. Cool. So this is the this is the Gateway to the Smokies podcast. You can find out more about this podcast at gateway to the smokies.fun. Or you can go see it streaming live and video every uh, Tuesday from 6 to 7 at facebook.com slash gateway to the Smokies podcast. Uh, you also be able to, on the gateway to the smokies.fun, you're able to sign up to a newsletter and find out about future things and other things going on. Um, we are part of the talkradio.nyc network, which has lots of live podcasts. Uh, and the next one after this is one about New York, which I recommend you go find out about visiting New York, because now you can go from rural to urban and have a wonderful evening discovering things that you can uh, plan and put on your bucket list. Uh, thank you. I'm Joseph Franklin McElroy. This is the Gateway to the Smokies podcast. And it's been a pleasure talking to you.